foes. Welcome to Art Book Club. My name is Stephanie Scott. I've got Visual Nomad or Jennifer here on Twitch. We are talking about curating art now. And that's our book today. We also have a, a little mascot. Um, she's chewing on a bone right now, yeah. but she will be in my lap at some point saying hi to all of you. Her name's Elsa. She's uh, five towns of fluff. She doesn't know a lot about art because she's a puppy. and um, <laughs> But she's very enthusiastic. So... <laughs> that's our special yesterday um mm -hmm. i i guess we should start with my very first question which is always the first question did you finish this book i did wow nice mm -hmm. i got 75 percent of the way through it okay um yeah what what are your overall thoughts at first do do we like it do we not like it um i think it's good like i i think it uh, like for me, it kind of uncovers, I think, some of the issues in the art world that like you and I have talked about in passing for sure. Right. Um, and kind of goes into a bit more depth about them on like on a level that I don't naturally get to interact with uh, just because I'm not a curator. I, I don't run in those circles, so I don't I don't know. So it's it's kind of interesting to hear. The dynamics that go on there, you know, be it a Biennale, uh, an actual like government museum or a private gallery or museum, mm -hmm. um, how curation happens with that. So nice. Yeah, I overall, um, I didn't like the first half of the book, and I think that's why I struggled for <laughs> to get into it i feel like right now i'm at the best part of the book where i'm just like this is so interesting and i'm learning something new but i feel like <laughs> i said this to a friend the other day i was like I, this feels like reading a podcast script <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's a lot of facts about things i already know or could just generally assume and i'm like i wish right. i started halfway through because now i'm like okay we're getting into topics like um how covid changed curation digitally sure. and things like that i'm like this is what i want to know about so i'm, I'm a right. little bit bummed at myself actually for not finishing this one in time um which is the first time for me for because usually i'm just like whatever i don't finish it it's fine but this one i'm like oh i should have i should have pushed I through earlier later at the beginning oh i'm definitely gonna finish it yeah <laughs> but yeah. yeah um sometimes if something has a really dry beginning and you have to like Mm, it hurts yeah. a bit to get through it i mean that's just yeah with any book yeah, yeah. um so my enthusiasm was a little bit waned there but i did like I, I have been liking this book and i think it holds up in the series so far this is the second book in hot topics sure. in the art world that we've read for brushwork podcast here and i'm i'm liking it i'm liking it what was um what was your favorite chapter or the most interesting chapter that you liked Hmm. Or want to talk about? Let me see here. Uh, I had something highlighted mm -hmm. here. Let's see if I can find it. I didn't write down the page number I should have. I actually bought this book instead of borrowing it from the library, and I'm able to like highlight things. And now I have notes, and it's so convenient. I'm like, is this is nice. this what it like when you spend money on books? Wow. See, this is that's why I like um ebooks because like you can just pull them up on a Kindle. So nice. And you can highlight things and like go back through. <laughs> Sorry, this is taking forever. Listener, oh, are you uh, an ebook person 
or are you an audiobook person or mm. you, are you a physical book person? You should you should tell us in the comments. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um like the concept of a star curator, like somebody that if they curate a show, people go to see that. Like yeah. I don't know that I really knew that there were people at that level where it was like they had created such a name for themselves as a curator that, you know, people flocked to whatever they put together. Same. Um, I could understand like the artist curator shows, you know, like, uh, yeah. Kazuma, Quasim mm -hmm. like her shows are huge. Like she curates her own shows, their rooms, their, you know, they're crazy. Like she, she takes over the museum essentially and, and does the thing, but she's the artist right. that's being shown. So like, I could understand that being more of a draw for people than like somebody that is the director of MoMA. Like the only thing I can think that they're famous for is like, I want to get my piece in the MoMA. I need to know who you are. I need right. to talk to you. I need to network with you, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah. not your ability to curate a show. I yeah. have also never heard of a, uh, well, I guess I just never paid attention to a celebrity curator before. A lot of the names mm -hmm. that were dropped in this book, I was like, I don't, I don't actually know who these people are. Um, right. And it kind of feels to me in the same way celebrity chefs are, where it's just like, mm. this mm -hmm. is, <laughs> this feels a little odd <laughs> that it's. Yeah. I mean, I guess when you are in a world that is so uh, political, I'm going to say, um, as the art world, you're you're going to get famous when you're that well connected. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it just feels odd. <laughs> I'm like, a famous curator, a famous curator. I... I don't know. Like, would mm -hmm. I recognize them on the street? Like, <laughs> like, what is that? Would I hire someone just because they were famous at curating? I, I guess that's also one of the points in the book here where it's just like, mm -hmm. are what makes a good curator, is it their past experience or is it their individuality of, you know, their backgrounds and stuff like that? And what, what makes for someone who's good at putting together a show of artwork, especially in a museum? And yeah. It's wild. It's wild. Have you ever thought about curating your own show? Maybe not of yeah. your work, yeah, but yeah. Um, what would what would that look like? Oh gosh. Hmm. I mean, I think it would be more of an installation type situation. I think the shows mm -hmm. that have struck me the most have been the ones where it's gone beyond just a bunch of pieces hanging on a wall. Yeah. Um the one that really sticks out in my mind is an exhibit that was in Chicago. It was a uh, Van Gogh gone and, um, Cezanne, I think. I think they came to Seattle too. And it had the letters between Van Gogh and his brother, Theo. Um, and they juxtaposed them with the pieces. So time frame wise, like they would have the piece and it'd be like, and this is, this is where he wrote about, you know, his day during, you know, painting that piece or whatever, or what was going on around that time in his life. Um, and then they had a mock-up of the Yellow House, 
that he's famous for painting from. That's so cool. Um, And you could like, you could go in it and look around and stuff. Really? But yeah, yeah, it was really cool. Like it was, I think it was to scale because it's not a big place. Like it's just a little French apartment. So it's not (laughs) massive or anything. So they could fit it in the museum. And uh, yeah, just those are the ones that like strike me the most. Like I've been to an exhibit where they had um, Dale Chihuly's work in a uh, botanical garden. Like they do shows at this botanical garden all the time. Like they change seasonally. Oh, cool. So they have like Halloween, Christmas, that kind of thing. But he came in and he did his glass sculpture installations all over the property. And it was super cool. Cause like he created some of them on site to fit that place. Like he brings some of his own, like, like his previous work. And then he always does work on site so that it kind of fits in. Um, And like, those are the things that I always find like super interesting and really cool type of installations that I think get people excited, Mm -hmm. you know, because it it engages them and, you know, gets them, you know, wondering and thinking and uh, it, it, it takes all of who they are mentally, physically to get involved in something like that, where you're walking around a property and you're seeing that you're reading things that they've put out so that you can kind of understand the sculptures and the concepts and everything. Um, But yeah, I would love to have something like that where, you know, you create this immersive experience for sure. I also feel that installations are most notable in my memory. I feel like whenever I go to an exhibit um, it's single paintings that stand out to me when it's like, mm-hmm. um, like recently, or I guess last year, there was this exhibit at the Seattle Art Museum of paintings from this one beach in France, whose name I cannot remember, but we'll link in the show notes. And it's where a lot of artists have gone to paint. And so it was just an exhibit mm-hmm. of all these paintings from, you know, a century of artists going here and <laughs> how the, the space has changed. And I, I remember mostly... Oh, wow. Uh, two or three paintings that I was just like, this is such a gorgeous painting. But the exhibit as a whole, I'm like, has an interesting topic, but I I don't remember the majority of it, but I do remember, the, you know, those few paintings. But when I go to an installation and it's like, it, it like consumes you almost, right? When you go into it, that's where I'm just like, who put this together? This is so cool. And isn't that interesting as visual artists to think that way? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I went to, I went to London four and a half years ago and there was a Shahuli exhibit at Kew Gardens, Mm -hmm. which is this huge botanical gardens. And so when you were describing that to me, I was like, oh, that must be a very similar thing as to what you witnessed. I'm like, it it was extremely cool seeing all these like glass spires Mm -hmm. in also yeah. these towers of cacti <laughs> and palm trees and whatever <laughs> in this beautiful glass building and yeah that is just a, a knockout idea and i'm like yeah hmm who who did curate that i guess before reading this book I, it's never popped up into my mind to be like who is the curator and maybe that's the point of curation maybe that's when it's yeah. done well you don't think about who put it together but what you're experiencing yeah, it kind of removes them from the picture and mm-hmm. it just kind of introduces the the conversation 
to the viewer, be it between, you know, multiple artists or the conversation with a single artist to the viewer, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. more of a facilitator, so to speak, in that respect. This book is, I I haven't, of course, I haven't finished it, but I, I am recommending this book to any sort of artist. I think it's, I think this book is definitely directed at visual artists. Um, maybe not mm-hmm. people who are already in the curated curation field <laughs> or students of being of curatorship, but it's, it, it's the same way as when you start learning how to put, <laughs> this is a funny comparison, but it's like when you start making YouTube videos, you start looking at YouTube videos differently. And when you read a book like this, you're going to start looking at exhibitions differently from the person making it versus being the I guess the main audience and that's kind of fun for when you are an artist yourself you're producing your own your own uh visual work here it's uh, it's sure um yeah in this book we go through a couple topics of I feel like correct me if I'm wrong but I feel like a majority of the topics here is um one how to become a curator and what the process is like and how that's changed over the years and I feel like it's not a super popular field they talk about a couple of statistics mm. where it's like there's a couple of programs that are really well known for teaching curatorship well and they mm-hmm. have high application rates and very small acceptance rates but right. the high is like 800 people a year applied to these things and I'm like that's that's high but that's also like a tiny percentage of people who want to be a curator um right but then it also talks about how now with the internet <laughs> I feel like right. every book reader is like well, let's talk about the internet now <laughs> it's that uh, mm. you can become a, a a curator in your own right in a very in a much more casual way than what used to be sure have you ever applied to online group shows that are like only online uh, I have. Mm-hmm. I've not gotten into any of them, but I did. Yeah, I've applied to a couple. I got into like one, and usually they're like ten dollars to enter, something like that. They're very sure. tiny, and you know, there's definitely one person who's curating it, and they choose who gets to be in this online exhibition. And I've only done this like once or twice, and then been like, these aren't for me. These don't actually do anything. Because I feel like nobody is like, oh, I want to see this online exhibition. And I'm going to go mm. to this person's website and I'm just going to scroll through all of their, um, let's say they're like blue <laughs> paintings. Right. <laughs> hey, thanks for the follow. <laughs> um, and um, <laughs> and it's, they're, it's strange. You, you curate your own experience online. You curate what you're putting out online. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, and it's it's interesting to think what what are your opinions on curating your own well okay those are two questions <laughs> what, um curating your own um i guess presentation of your work versus okay. um what are your experiences in curating what is presented to you is that a clear enough question hmm So how I would curate my 
own as opposed to how I like to experience it from somebody else? Yeah. Is that the question? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think curating your own is very, very different in the respect of you've poured yourself into that, at least as an artist curator. Um, I would think that, you know, it would be hard not to be more involved in a self-curated as opposed to uh, something that somebody else has curated. It's a topic that you may be interested in or whatever, but it's, it's through somebody else's lens. Um, one thing I will say about self-curated stuff, I think it works in the context of something like, I follow an artist that's named Sophie T. She's very well known over in London, Australia. She's had her stuff in um, some pretty well-known galleries around the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I think she's very social media heavy. She She's always posting about what's going on in her studio, day-to-day -day life, that kind of thing. I think that a self-curated show by somebody like that, that already has a heavy fan base that expects stuff online from that artist. Yeah. Um, and that moves in a digital space. She has a whole NFT gallery in her gallery space. It's wow. just NFTs upstairs. That's cool. And so she's like cut, she's doing some really cutting edge art stuff. Like she's doing stuff with, um, like Oculus goggles and that kind of thing. She's creating art that way. She's creating 3D digital art that way. Um, but yeah, I think it works in that context because you already have a built-in fan base. Mm -hmm. Like if it's not, if it's something, somebody like me, I don't have the following to be able to pull for that. Like it wouldn't be beneficial for me. Like you said, when you applied to that one show, you didn't feel like it was beneficial because who knows this person that's curating. Right. And how many people know you? And is that enough to, you know, like make it worth your time to do an event like that? You know, where you are, you know, unless it's a passion project where you're just like, I'm just going to update this every so often, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter if somebody sees it or not. This is something that I'm passionate about and I love doing. Um, and if somebody sees it, they sees it, they see it, then, you know, I can understand that too. But I guess in that sense, you have to have a built up reputation and the yeah. artist you talked about has, a huge strategy and lots and lots of work mm -hmm. went behind that. And it was very careful, probably. Um, mm -hmm. It didn't happen on accident. And when you have a little gallery that does an online exhibition, it's like, okay, what's the reputation of the curator? So in that sense, a celebrity curator makes sense. It's like, oh, they're known for doing these mm. things and right. um, applauded for it even. So that's... Right. It's fascinating. Um, yeah, like, yeah, like if it was somebody like Ai Weiwei that curated uh, an exhibit, people know who that is. Uh -huh. Even if it wasn't of their work, it was, oh, these are, you know, pieces that have inspired me or, 
you know, they picked a topic to pull from and, you know, it was things that struck them in that sphere of things. Um, then I could understand that too. Yeah. Like you have, like with social media, you have to have that, that base of viewership mm-hmm. for it to really do be, have the same effect as it would in a, like a brick and mortar situation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we had to show the tiny dog for a second. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yes. What do you hear? Do you hear the neighbors? <laughs> um, yeah. How do you, how do you curate your own online experience? What do you do to make that worthwhile? Okay. So like I have the thought in reading the last chapter I got to, which was six or something like that, where, okay. Oh no, where did it go? Come back, come back, come back to my brain. Um, how do you curate your own online experience? Right. So in order to get into the art world, (laughs) an Mm -hmm. easy way now is to make connections with other artists online and in order to get a good feed on what's happening in the art world you have to actively follow the correct people correct quote unquote the correct people that lead you towards your goals right and mm-hmm. now i'm wondering how do you curate your online experience mm. to reach your goals do you have any like things that you actively do some of it is so uh I read the tweets and stuff from art forums, a few different art publications. So Mm -hmm. then I kind of get an idea of what's going on in the overall art world. Yeah. You know, they'll touch on, you know, art theft, um, you know, hot topics of the time, um, which one of those falls into this, which is um, where they are sending artworks back to their origin. Mm-hmm. And how that affects curation and whatnot. Um, and I mean, as far as like Instagram and stuff, I am, I'm recommended people by my friends like you and mm-hmm. Cassidy and some other people that I know that are artists. Um, and so I follow that and I pull stuff from there too. Like if they're, those people are like, Hey, check this out. Then, you know, and I'm kind of picky about things. Like I don't, I'm not, I'm not so quick to follow things. Um, I don't want to clutter my feed with a bunch of just like, I love art and that's great, but I, I need it to be um, strategic in some respects because of how I'm trying to filter things that I use or that inspire me or, educate me on what's going on. So I'm, I'm kind of picky about those things. I Um, got this advice from a teacher maybe six years ago when Instagram was really taking off and she's like, and mm -hmm. it had just been to the point where you can make more than one profile and easily switch between them. Mm. And she, she told me and my other students, she was like, you have to curate your own experience online and a really mm-hmm. good way to do that is to make a separate profile, not just for your art business, but for that too, and follow very specific people and keep it mm. as uh, pure, quote unquote, <laughs> as you can. <laughs> um, sure. You're not, if you see something 
on that feed and you've been following artists and artists and artists and then it's like uh you should read this book and it's like fantasy or something like don't interact with it like really be careful mm-hmm. about who you're following and that will sure. it will change what you see and how you how you are interacting with the larger art world in general and it's um it's i've been growing this one account that i use just for following artists and it's been very nice <laughs> to have something that's outside <laughs> of my personal feed but that does keep me informed sure. about you know local shows but also like um you know biennials and things like that just bigger, bigger shows yeah. that i one might not ever be able to go to but two it's it feeds the mind and keeps you informed and that's really good anyways that's, sure. that's just like a little sure. thing people could do um yeah yeah, this this book will make you think about a lot of different ways that curation, uh, yes, hello, <laughs> curation <laughs> um, can affect you and your art and what you're affected by. And mm. I um, did you ever have a show that was just, I mean, you talked about a couple, but that were that was just like so impactful in your life that you were like, I will never forget going to this art show. Do you have anything like that? Uh, yeah, I think the Van Gogh Go Gone one mm-hmm. was that for me because I had never really seen that done. Like usually like they'll have something like that and it'll just be pieces interspersed between each other, you mm-hmm. know, and they'll be like, oh, they live together and they may give you, you know, a couple paragraphs on the the friendship that they had and a yeah. little bit about the living experience. But this was like 45 letters that were written and there were it was i don't think they could do it now because of the liability that was involved in getting those pieces in one spot at one time um yeah you think oh gosh yeah they had starry night there are you kidding me wow i mean (laughs) they had they had sunflowers they had starry night they had Gogons, um, the uh, bathing women or what it was, whatever that piece is that they always show for him. Yeah, they had that piece there. Wow. Like they had some of the biggest pieces that these people made Expensive. there, and I was like, "How did they do this?" Like they charged fifteen dollars to get just into this part of the show, into this part of the museum. It did was you say fifty sectioned off fifteen. Oh, <laughs> one five. <laughs> Uh, just to get into this section, the rest of the um, the uh, museum, I believe, was free or like donation, wow. you know, based. And this, they were like, it's fifteen dollars for a ticket. You got a time, you got a ticket, you could go through it. Um, so, yeah, they had to fund it outside of even what the museum had to be able to pay for it to do this. Wow. Um, yeah, like to have those kind of pieces together it's just it's wild it's so wild that's pretty um, cool <laughs> that's pretty cool and i just kept saying how did they do this like who did what and who knows who to be able to get all these pieces cuz like think about it almost every one of those pieces has a different owner mm-hmm. you have to get all of them to agree to loan those pieces to the museum and then sure you have to explain to them yeah (laughs) that not only will your piece be there but other several high profile pieces will be there as well 
which means theft is at a height at that point. So that becomes a concern. And like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's nutty. Like I could, the Vermeer, so they had a Vermeer show, uh, I think two months ago, Mm -hmm. if I remember right. Where is this? Is the only time, this was in, uh, uh, wasn't in Reykjavik, I don't think. It's okay if you don't remember. I think it was in Amsterdam or something like that. Mm-hmm. But um, it is the first time that they've gotten 36 out of the 40 known Vermeer pieces together in the same room at the same time. Wow. <laughs> um, it was insane. They had 600,000 people go through that exhibit. They made a killing off of it um that's amazing but the liability for it was bonkers like i go i if i was the curator i wouldn't have been able to sleep till the exhibit was done i'd have just been like pack them up and get them out of here now as soon as it's done get them out of here i don't want to see them i don't want the liability get it out of here it's beautiful but get it out of here um Mm -hmm. yeah like to understand those pieces a piece are at least 2.2 million dollars a piece all of them because he only made 40 paintings he didn't paint very long before he passed away so that drives up the price of all of his paintings and he's also um considered one of the greatest painters of all time you know so like (laughs) it's wild (laughs) it's insane i would have loved to have gone to that i was like oh i wish i was rich and i could get on a plane and go (laughs) I, it is my dream to interview a curator um, for the podcast at some point. I'm like, this would mm-hmm. be so cool because this yeah. job sounds so intense oh, yeah. and so complicated. Oh, gosh, yeah. So organized yeah. and it's a different kind of person. In this book, they're like, uh, we don't believe that curators can become artists, but we do believe that artists can become curators. Mm-hmm. Um, or an artist curator, but not like fully to the point because it's such a different kind of mindset. Sure. There's this one question sure. in the book that it asks a couple of times, and I want to know your opinion. Um, do you think that curators can be creative within their job? Uh, yeah, within the context of um, who do I show together? Yeah. Like, how do I choose the interplay between these two artists, and how do I create their their storytellers mm-hmm. they tell a story with the exhibit so absolutely they're just as creative as a writer i mean that's basically what writing is it's true they're storytelling mm-hmm. um so yeah it's not like oh we went in the back and we found a few pieces and we threw them out on the floor yeah it's easy like, there's you a narrative a- <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's a narrative around all of that so yeah absolutely i think they they are creative inside of that pocket um, to some extent, um, it gets kind of murky. I know that there's been a bunch of stuff that has happened recently where it's come down to, so the placards that are next to paintings usually have information about the painter, the time, and maybe a little blurb about the story behind the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and people have become increasingly critical about those placards and 
they have to go through and change those placards all the time. Oh, I bet. Because somebody will phone the, you know, um, the museum and say, hey, you know, I'm a representative of the first world nations. You can't refer to us as this anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't recognize this. You need to change your placard. And it becomes this. There's heavy politicking and curation right now, um, especially with the reappropriation of pieces back to their homelands mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and to their origins. Uh, there is a bunch of political shuffling going on because, little known story, the CIA funded the abstract expressionist movement as part of a political move against the uh, Soviet Socialist Republic to in a show of power. Um, what? So they they funded them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Was this, uh, in because, a was this in curating art now? No, okay. it wasn't. But it's it's I've I've watched some documentaries and stuff. Like I've watched a documentary on um abstract expressionism and they talked to Robert Motherwell and he talked about that a little bit. Okay, you have to link this to me um, so I can share it with the people. Yeah. I'll find That's it. That's wild. And, and, yeah. So art has power. Uh, because it was a show of our artists are better than your artists. That means our country is better than your country. And Russia didn't want to be shown up. Yeah. They, they viewed their art as, you know, the highest form of expression and creativity. They were better human beings than somebody in the United States. And the CIA, yeah, paid them to basically be a lover in some of those situations to put pressure um yeah it's wild this it's is wild story. what people do with art um I... money laundering money oh, laundering man. happens with with art all the time like that's the majority of what the high art world is about unfortunately is money laundering we yeah. are definitely going to be reading books about uh well this cia funding <laughs> <laughs> abstract art i'm gonna find a book about that we're gonna find a book about money laundering and art because that's exciting um oh yeah wild and there was another one that i have forgotten about but it's on the list we're gonna be reading a book about oh um about placards specifically in museums mm, okay um yeah, yeah. it's gonna be coming up in 2024 um ew, wild uh last podcast uh for art book club i talked about how in um a recent trip to Berlin, I was like pretty impressed with how thorough the placards were on all of the art museums mm. and about, especially about um, origin and about whether or not it had been attempted to be returned, if it had been <laughs> appropriated by the British Empire, basically, um, <laughs> or mm. or right. whatever scavengers they went out and took, took artifacts from, and also um, whether or not they're allowed to keep it or if it's been on loan or nobody wanted it yeah. or they couldn't find the person. And with the amount, the, the thoroughness they had gone through each mm -hmm. item in every single museum I went to in Berlin, I was like, oh, they, they're really trying to do the right thing here. And I, mm -hmm. th that felt very impressive. I haven't been to a museum in the United States since that trip. Um, it was pretty recent. And I'm like, I'm going to be looking at these placards way differently um sure yeah <laughs> it's wild 
yeah, I think I think uh, Berlin's art museums are considered some of the best in the world right now. They're so good. Um, so that doesn't surprise me. They're, I mean, Germans are thorough. That's their thing. Uh, for lack of stereotyping people, <laughs> they are <laughs> like they pride themselves in in being great at what they do. Um, regardless yeah having the job as curator means you do need to deal with these things now and I think it in this book it talks about how the boom of the Black Lives Matter movement really escalated this that was you know already this problem Um, and Uh how things have changed a lot in in this book it also talks about the uh, virtual tour of museums has become much more popular Mm -hmm. especially when we were in lockdown with Mm -hmm. COVID um, and that these tools were available for quite a while before the pandemic. Um, but yeah, since then, how good the how good these images that were being posted online had to be now, and how the tours mm-hmm. were like a whole different ballpark of curation, and um, like the Met was mm-hmm. just like <laughs> it's so yeah. it's so much, um, and you know, it's it's an interesting read. It's an interesting read. Yeah. Do you have any? Quotes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think in this, you, you asked me if I had any quotes. Um, um, the thing that I highlighted was uh, the quote is that the star curator phenomenon is itself rooted in an almost exclusively European and North American history that makes little reference to the biennales of the global South, many of which established forms of self-conscious critical regionalism working counter to the North-South flow of cultural influence. Mm -hmm. Um, The concept of uh, imperialism affecting art and the fact of, well, the Elgin marbles, for instance. Lord Elgin went and stole marbles from the Greek Colosseum. He stole them. They didn't belong to him. Mm-hmm. He walked in and said, I want those. And he took them. They ended up in the British Museum. And now the British Museum has to return them. Because they're like, he didn't own those. You know he didn't own those. It's not even your culture. Why do you have these? You know? Um, it's it's those kind of things that, that spark these conversations. Black Lives Matter. Uh, an instance I can think of that happened was um, a Basquiat show that was supposed to happen in Orlando that had 40 pieces that Basquiat did that nobody knew were around. Supposedly, he did them on cardboard and sold them to this gentleman. Unfortunately for the museum, the gentleman was still alive and said that Basquiat had never sold him any of those pieces. Or he said that before he passed away. He said, I have no recollection of anything like this. They found out that these were all forgeries oh and that they were passed off as real. Um, multi-million dollar pieces because it's Basquiat. But trying to fund a museum through pigging, piggybacking off of the, the popularity mm-hmm. of black art. Mm-hmm multicultural art so that you can benefit financially off of it <laughs> finders keepers like, yikes um that's disgusting to me yeah, yeah. wow you wow know, th- those are the things yeah those are the things you have to deal with as a curator and like 
there are curators that aren't getting paid a whole lot. They talk about this a little bit mm-hmm. in the, towards the beginning of the book. Um, they don't get paid much. Well, the director of the Louvre in Paris has been charged with um, selling artifacts for money. He sold $50 million worth of artifacts through the Louvre in Dubai. He lost his seat. It's actually a government elected seat. So people vote this this person in. He had been there for three terms. So he was a long-standing trusted member person in the Louvre. Yeah. And they're going to try him. They're going to probably put him in jail. But these things are happening. Like he's not the only one that has done this. They're finding tons of directors and curators that are doing this, that are lifting artifacts and selling them on the black market. This um, is this is the tea yeah. for today. This is the tea for today's yeah. episode. <laughs> How do it's you- wild. Okay, you know. How- tell me, tell me your resources here. How are you hearing about all these stories? Um, <laughs> Art Forum is a great place to learn about this. They mm-hmm. are they're constantly talking about stuff that is in the news worldwide, not just in the United States, which is what I love about it. Mm-hmm. It's mainly European, to be quite honest. Um, and so, yeah, you really get to start to see some of those those nuances between what happens with all the players that are in the art world. The reason why there is a market for that stuff is because there are entitled wealthy people that think that they can own whatever they want. They just have to pay for it. Um, And when that happens, people take advantage of that and we lose artifacts. Like these are supposed to be public objects to help us learn about the history of humanity over time. It just hurts everyone. Yeah, we won't know because those things have been stolen, sold, and hidden. I mean, don't even get me started on the Geneva Freeport. The fact that there's so much art in that building. If that building burns to the ground, we are losing massive swaths of history. It kind of feels like they're lost now. It kind of, I mean... Yeah. Being, oh, absolutely. Because yeah. people will never see them again. They're they're stowed away. Yeah. Until they are sold again, you know, and they're moved to another room in the Freeport, essentially, because that's all these people do is they basically transfer their paintings from one room to the other. Like they literally have art curation workshops built into these storage units. They're massive. Mm-hmm. They're hermetically sealed climate controlled like they have their own like display galleries where if somebody wants to come see their private they have a nice little room that you can come in they'll hang the wall the painting on the wall or the piece in the room and you can come look at it and then they'll put it back away but it's there are no baffling. cameras not they don't know what goes in and comes out of there that's why people store their stuff there yeah because it is discreet um they never quote unquote take delivery of the piece so they never have to pay taxes for it that's part of the money laundering process of it as well so uh it never it never goes on the books so to speak so 
yeah, it's it's wild. The the dangers of getting into topics like this is that you start to feel hopeless about the art world because nothing is good and nothing is pure. But it is simply <laughs> yeah. the reality of it, especially when right. you get into, I'm going to say, uh, levels of selling that are currently beyond you and I. <laughs> and, right, right. And it feels, it just feels bad. It feels bad to hear stories like this, but it feels bad to be like, and, you know, the people we we trust, like a director of a major museum, <laughs> And then they do things like that. It's like, oh, nothing can be trusted. And um, you're not going to see some of the greatest art pieces in the world uh, in your lifetime, probably, because they will be stuck in a storage unit. And uh, yeah, so it's it's cool. It's great. It's super. We love this. (laughs) I don't have a point for you here, except that um, it just sucks, you know? It sucks. Yeah. And if you do find a show that maybe has you know 40 uh forged basquiat paintings um and then you have to think about okay so who's responsible for this is the curator did they know that these were forged how did they find these are they guilty of putting this together or mm-hmm. were they just putting out the call for very fun basquiat paintings and they get approached like this and they're like is it is it the curator's responsibility to know if something is forged or not? Like, mm. is it the curator's responsibility to know if something is so authentic? And how do you avoid things like that if it's right. finding pieces that are, you know, real <laughs> and still interesting? Right. And at, to what extent are... To what extent do we have to go through the knowledge of what's real and what's not and and try not to get fooled in the process it's it's complicated i don't think i would want this job i this job of being curator is so complex and the payment is tiny and you're trying to do something cool assumedly you're you're assumedly trying to do something cool and put together a show of work that has a purpose and a story and interesting messages and tells people about work i'm talking about in museums specifically not in galleries and mm-hmm. um you know also makes money for the museum itself because that's these specialty exhibits are the main money bringers for these museums i know that i only go to the seattle art museum when they have a new special exhibit but mm. uh yeah it's um it's complex it's complex and yeah knowing who to trust is interesting and it, it feels bad that you have to go to when you go to museum you have to be like okay so how much of this can i trust <laughs> like you have to think like right. that most people don't when they go to a museum most people will go into a museum and think mm, i'm just gonna go see some art and it's gonna be great and fun and interesting but now you have to go into a museum and think okay um who put on this exhibit and is it good do I like the work? Okay, great. That's the easy part of thinking. But is it responsible? Is it economical? Is it good for the planet? <laughs> they they very briefly go into um, like the carbon footprint of museums in this book, like mm-hmm. kind of towards yeah. the middle um, and how like the Tate Modern was trying to reduce its um, carbon emissions by 10% by this year. I don't know if they've hit that or not. That'd be fun to look up. Yeah. But yeah. 
yeah it's uh it's interesting yeah it touches on so many different um cultural hot topics for mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. um you know like provenance like it's ultimately it's conjecture unless that person is standing in front of you which most of them are dead they can't tell you yeah that's mine you know you have to take at somebody's word yeah this piece was passed down from so and so to so and so here's the paperwork supposedly this is the the bill of sale and it's legitimate you know you can't totally hold a curator to that because they can only do so much research like they can vet it as far as they have the possibility of vetting it you know if it comes around that it's a fake i mean there are people out there that are massively talented at making fakes like i've watched some shows with people that are some of the best forgers in the world and it's wild some of the stuff that they do Mm -hmm. and um yeah just having to deal with that alone that would keep me up at night. Like, you know, is this real? Like, or did we get duped? You know, did we get duped. Are the people I'm hiring to help me with this job not great with bad actors? Is the director who's right. above me? Because a curator right. is not the highest person in, in the chain right. of command here in a museum. Um, right. And like, it, is the director a bad actor? Are they good? And like, right. it's all it's right. all about one person's motives and this can go into any sort of industry here this is not definitely not Mm -hmm. just art museums here but it's what i got a question here that says what is the difference between a museum and a gallery and i would say a gallery is usually privately owned and museums are usually government funded uh typically Mm -hmm. um not entirely but usually a good portion Mm -hmm. galleries art is for sale Museums are just to display art most of the time. Yeah, that's also they'll send you tchotch- They'll sell you tchotchkes and stuff with like t-shirts and bags mm-hmm. that have the paintings on them and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the yeah. museums aren't in the business of selling pieces, so to speak, unless they go to auction. Unless they need to, yeah. Yeah. Um, there is a new podcast I found that I mm. must share as a recommendation um, and mostly for Nomad here, but also for everyone who likes art. Uh, hold, let, me, let me pull it up because it's fascinating. Okay, it's called the Bear Facts Podcast, and they tend to interview mm. big-name artists uh, or art mm. industry people, um, like Jerry Saltz and oh, okay. art fairs and inside auctions, and they interviewed Bleeple. They have, what, five episodes out now? It's pretty new. Um, okay. It's been fascinating. It's been interesting. All these people that they've been interviewing are really insider. Um, I will have it linked in the show notes for y'all. But uh, Bear is spelled B-A-E-R. Bear Evan Fax is F-A-X-T. I don't love the spelling of these things, but, you know, here we are. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) Um, That's my dyslexia kicking in. I'm like, am I spelling facts (laughs) wrong? Or is this how they're spelling it? (laughs) Classic. Um... And, uh, yeah, that's, I feel like that's my recommendation for if y'all want more insider of like specifically secondary market and art museum and art fair podcast recommendations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Give it a listen. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, 
what else do you got for me? You got any final thoughts on this book? Mm, I think it opens a can of worms, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, I think it, it, it spiders out into so many facets of the art world and why it is the way it is right now. I think Lillian um, Cameron, who's the author, did a really good job in um, in writing this essay. There's a lot of facts. There's a lot of names that you could look mm-hmm. up individually from this book and learn more if, if a more specific topic interests you. Um, again, mm-hmm. I found the first half of this book to be redundant because I knew most of these things. But I feel like <laughs> if you are new right. to the art world and you're just trying to get any sort of grasp, it's quite educational. Um, mm-hmm. I am not finished with it, but I'll probably finish it tonight. I might even do an update here on the podcast about it. Um, but... So, so far I'm giving this a, uh, three and a half out of five. Um, uh-huh. but that might change. Mm. What about you? I give it a four out of five. Mm-hmm. I really like this series. And Love I it. think, you know, you and I have talked about this. There's like seven or eight books in this series. They're short. They're 125 pages a piece usually. Um, but they're what's going on right now. It's mm-hmm. not, oh, this happened 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's more of they just post questions and let you think about it. Like, that's the cool part. Like, they just, they give you tons of information and kind of let you grapple with what's going on, you know? Um, especially as an artist, like... I think the art world is one of the things that we constantly grapple with um, because we're told to be altruistic with our intentions as an artist, you know, keep it pure. And, you know, and when business touches it, it changes that. And it's like, well, no, business is just as much a part of art as it's ever been. And, that is a romantic notion that society has pushed on artists mm-hmm. that they are supposed to quote unquote live up to. And it's just not realistic. It's not. So it's like, okay, so how do I navigate this world? You know, what do I have to, what do I have to contend with? And so these are, these are, these essays are great for kind of giving you a well rounded, perspective of what goes on in the art world They're, i'm excited to read more of them but me too yeah i'm already like committed i'm like we're gonna read the entirety of this series probably mm-hmm. in the next year or year and a half or so i'm glad <laughs> i found it i'm me so too. glad i found it yeah i'm impressed with it um a new one just came out so i'm like they're okay. keeping this series going you can get yeah. these um i got i bought mine off of on kindle but uh, i also saw them mm-hmm. on the library now which the first time I read mm-hmm. the, the, when I read the first book of the series, um, they weren't at my library. So that's fun. Okay. Um, yeah, I, uh, would recommend very educational. If you were like, I, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of wish it was a podcast or a, like an audio book, but you know, yellow. Um, <laughs> if you're like, I want to learn about what's going on. I want to have a well-rounded education. I want something that's heavily researched and just to help me think or like discuss at a dinner party, even like this book would be something very fun to read. Cause there's yeah. again, like Nomad said, a lot of little topics too. It is a can of worms kind of book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, For sure. Awesome. Um, well, that's been curating art now, Lillian Cameron. And uh, mm-hmm. are you ready for the next book? Yeah. Heck yeah. 
Hit me with it. All right. This book, uh, we're going back in time. <laughs> we're going okay. we're going back about uh, 70 years here, maybe 80 years. Here we Ooh. go. We're going to read Ooh. The Agony and the Ecstasy by Irving Stone. This book is a biography of Michelangelo. And it's okay. good. <laughs> it's okay. um, very narratively written. So you're, it's not going to be like, and then this year, Michelangelo did this thing. It's going to be more like, uh, okay. and then he went out and he went into the night and he um, and, like dug up a body or something. There's going to be some of that in this whoa. book. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> um, I feel like that's the only spoiler I'm going to give you, but also like it's kind okay. of intense. Um, this book yeah. is kind of long it's 700 pages 770 pages um but because we're reading this giant book we have two months to read it because there's no book club okay. in november right um this book reads really quickly this is my second time i've chosen this book because um it was one of my friend's favorite books ever and i was just like i think we gotta we gotta read about one of the great historics and <laughs> Mm. learn about his life <laughs> so yeah. it's, a, it's definitely a biographical novel um i think i think you're all gonna like it and that's Good. what i'm reading yeah 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 be interesting i don't know much about michelangelo to be quite honest his his work is so famous and i mean we got david we got all sorts of carvings and paintings and drawings and like this is this was a smart guy and uh, his life is a little bit scandalous, and I love it. So it's going to be fun. We're going we're gonna to hear about the uh, Catholic Church probably quite a lot. We're going to hear about his uh, personal life. We'll hear about how he learned to make art and uh, about his death, probably. Um, okay. Yeah. Nice. And that's what we're reading, and that's, that's what we're reading for Book Club. Jennifer, where can people find you here on the internet? Well... You can first find me at Visual Nomad on here on Twitch. Mm -hmm. And I also have a Instagram account. It is Visual Nomad double underscore uh, because somebody else has the other one and they haven't done anything with it for eight years. And Rude. I'm kind of frustrated about that, but whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. And I also have my own website, visualnomad.art. Uh, you can go check out my stuff there and also listen to past podcasts on there as well nice so yeah yeah nomad has the entire archive of our book club up on our website you can also find it on my website which is stephaniescott.art that's where you can find the entirety of the podcast not just book club um and i am at stephaniescott.art over on instagram and uh here on twitch i'm to steph y'all thanks for your live viewers for hanging out with us today. It's been pretty fun. If you're listening yeah, yeah. to the replay, mm -hmm. uh, give us a subscribe and a thumbs up. Help us find more artists because it's super nice. And um, it's been nice to meet you and talk about books. So reminder, no Art Book Club in November. Uh, we'll be meeting next on December. What is the day? Oh, come on, little, come on, little phone. I can remember. It will be meeting next December 10th at 3 p.m. Okay. Yeah. And it's going to be great. All right, and that's Sounds all. Sounds good. Make good choices, everyone. I'll see you next time. Oh. Goodbye. Bye. See you later. Elsa bye. says bye. Bye. <laughs> bye.